welcome to Creekside Church. Let's go ahead and stand together as we sing this uh, opening song this morning. The haze is starting to lift from central Iowa. I saw that Des Moines, Iowa, waking up this morning had the worst air quality in the United States. So maybe that, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but people here love to celebrate the 4th of July. So uh, hopefully your voices are waking up and uh, ready to sing this next song. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my Just a few announcements and reminders. Um, you know, we're getting into the middle of summer, and um, we do have a special series that's going to be starting this week on Wednesday nights, uh, Motivation for Our Mission. And uh, Steve and some other uh, guys have kind of put together a, a little series, and uh, we're going to be, I think, going through a little study in Jonah that's going to help us think about uh, just our mission to the world around us. So, uh, if you can come on Wednesday night, Steve, remind me the time, 6.30 on Wednesday night. So uh, that's starting this week, and it will be for four weeks in July. Um, make sure you, you check out your Creekside News. If you don't get the Creekside News, it comes out every Friday, and um, you could email Mike Johnson. His, his email address is on the website, and, and if you're not on that list, that email list, uh, be sure to get at it because there's a lot of information that I can't cover uh, every Sunday morning. But another just thing I want to bring to your attention is we we're trying to get out a survey um, and just gather some feedback from people as we continue to kind of determine the steps and precautions as we uh, ease back into just this kind of normal routine of living with coronavirus and understanding how to just get back to our, our semblance of normal life. So there's some questions on there about remember service, about uh, Sunday school and fall ministries. So when you see that show up in your email, uh, be sure to go out there and give us some feedback. It will really help us to kind of get a temperature check, gauge where people are at, and uh, as we continue to make some changes. I invite you to look to the Lord with me as we pray, as we continue to worship in preparation for our study of the Word. Father, thanks for Pablo and Bethany and their children and for their faithfulness to pursue ministry in the midst of the difficulties and challenges that are not only felt by them but by many in the Christian world today as it's just hard. We can't meet face to face very many with very many people. So I just pray you'd encourage them. I ask now, Father, that as we look to your word, uh, that we would honor you as the King of Kings, that we would let the words of the psalmist wash over us, open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. 
And I ask, dear Father, that these truths would penetrate our hearts and our minds and that they would be useful to transform us into the people you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was Robert Frost, I believe, American poet who said these familiar words to many of you. Two roads diverged in the woods, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. This morning, as we come to the text in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is beginning to wrap up his Sermon on the Mount. And in doing so, he calls us, challenges us to take the road less traveled by. To take the road of righteousness as opposed to the road of religion. To take the road of the righteous as opposed to taking the road of the merely religious. And in so doing, he has all, and the difference is eternal, obviously. So it makes all the difference. It's an eternal difference that the choice makes. And now throughout the text of his Sermon on the Mount, which began in chapter 5, Jesus has constantly been reminding us of the conflict, the contrast between the conduct and the statements of those who say they're righteous but are really only religious, and those who are truly religious, or truly righteous, I'm sorry, that are truly righteous. So it's a contrast between the righteous and the religious, between those who are the true followers of Jesus and those who are the Pharisees, those who are the hypocrites, those who say that they know Jesus, but they don't really, or they don't really want to follow him. So he gives us this information, not just to inform us, not just to inform our minds, but to inspire our movement not simply so that this information will be absorbed but that it will be acted upon not only so that we will be challenged by it but that we'll be changed by it not just to teach us but to transform us that's what Jesus is calling us to to live not not religion but to live righteously and as we Come to the text, and if you have your Bibles or you want to open your device, whatever it is, to Matthew chapter 7, in verses 13 through 27, Jesus presents us with three contrasts, okay? There are three contrasts in this text that are to inform our response to the whole Sermon on the Mount. In verses 13 and 14, there's a contrast between two gates or ways in verses 15 through 23, there's a contrast between these two trees and fruits. And then in the last section, it's a contrast between two foundations and two men, okay? So as he comes to the text here, he calls us in this particular text, verses 13 through 23, his challenge for us is that we would embrace true Christianity, that we would enter the kingdom. And that we would be escaping or eliminating any temptation to be confused by just being religious. And so in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23, Jesus posts these two spiritual road signs. Now, 
You live in Iowa, you know, the, the thing I used to hear from Chicago in Illinois was there's two seasons, there's winter and construction. Well, in, in Iowa, there's all kinds of construction during the summertime, right? And so there's two road signs Jesus puts up in the text. And one is to direct us into the kingdom of God, and one is to deter us away from being deluded into thinking that we're okay because we're simply religious. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, or your device. I'm in Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 13 through 23. And then we're going to look at these two road signs. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every, tree, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad trees, tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are sobering words. And we see the first road sign right out of the gate in chapter 7, verse 13. And then we begin to see the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives us two indications of that difficulty. First of all, we see it through the admonition. The first word coming out of it is a command. Enter, he says. Enter by the narrow gate. And Jesus is talking primarily to a Jewish audience. A Jewish audience who were very religious. Children of Abraham by descent. Practicing all of the religious requirements of the law in many cases. And what Jesus does here is he begins to challenge them. That assumption that they're okay. Because they thought they were okay. Simply because of what they do. And because of who they are as by descendants of Abraham. And he challenges us by analogy who are religious. We do the right things. You know, we have a respect for God. We try to do what's right and good. But yet, do we really know God through faith in Jesus Christ? That's the question that we learned. The challenge is the assumption. Now, who are those, uh, you know, what does it mean to enter? You know, what are we to enter? He says in verse 20 or 13, enter by the narrow gate. Now look it down at verse 21. This will be a challenge for some of you who are on your device, but you can scroll down, okay, to verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter what? Will enter, you know, notice the same word, enter. What is it? What is it you enter? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist said that. Then Jesus said it in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The issue at hand is whether we're in the kingdom. 
And he says, enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's the rule of God in our hearts. It's that we've entered into a relationship God, with God through faith in Jesus Christ and we are in submission to Him and we are entering into the righteous life that only God can empower, enable, and do within us. It's a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We enter the kingdom of heaven, the rule of heaven in us. That's what he says, enter into it. By the narrow gate, just a, a metaphor for the, the path to describe it. Interestingly enough, if you read John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. By me. Anyone who goes in, you enter into the door. The door to what? To the kingdom of God. The door into the relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about what is a narrow gate? Think about the most narrow gate. I, do we have that? I want to see if you have that picture. This is the narrow gate, okay? A narrow way. A narrow way indicates that it's, it's not really something easily found. It's not something easily gone through. Some of you have been to Menards or another, well, Menards particularly, or I dropped Marla off at a store last night, and I mean, they have a gate right along the side, outside the wall, there's a gate, you get this narrow path that everybody has to go single file through it into it. You go into Menards and you have to go through the turnstile, that thing that hits you right here, you know, and you have to go through it. If you're from the city, you go through it when you go into the subway. The turnstile, it's narrow, it's not easily entered into, it's not something that everybody has. So there is the admonition, then he explains it teases it out, which shows us it's not easy. Jesus presents two contrasting ways. I find it interesting, and you don't have to find it interesting, but Jesus starts by talking about the narrow gate, but immediately he talks about the wide gate. Look at verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And then he gives us two reasons why we should enter by the narrow gate. And one of those reasons has to do with the wide gate. For, see the word in the text, for. This is a reason, this is a, the because. Why do we want to enter the narrow gate? Because. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be or there are who find it. That's the first reason. So what does he mean by that? The wide gate. Well, the wide gate, the many, the, 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 that's the easy way. That's the religious way. That's to be non-committed, but actually conforming to religion, but not really changed in our hearts. It is spiritual complacency, and the many includes the outright rebellious. So it's not only to the religious, predominantly to them, but anybody who's outright rebellious is one of the many. The many, the way leads to destruction. Jesus is contending that the many, these religious people, many of them, and the outright rebellious, guess what? You're not safe. Many are these people. And the way that they're going is leading them to destruction. He contends that the many, those who respect God, they maybe obey the word of God, are just as lost as outright rebellious. That means many people in the church of Jesus Christ who say that they're followers of Jesus are not. That's a sobering thought. 
he says these words intentionally to jar them, to shake them out of their complacency, and to motivate them to evaluate their lives to see if they truly are on the right path. Are they really in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, do we assume, do we assume that we are part of the kingdom simply because we have religious activity while our life is so far removed from the righteousness that Jesus has described. Now let's go back through it. What is it that God calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount? We neglect, do we neglect this? We say we're following God or Jesus, but we live a life completely divergent, completely apart from that. Think about it. Do we ignore compassion, mercy? Calls us to mercy in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 3. Do we ignore our own dishonesty? You know, in Matthew 5, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do we ignore our impure thoughts? Do we ignore our animosity and hostility towards those who are opposed to us? Do we ignore the fact that we're not always loving our enemies and praying for them? Do we ignore the fact that we're judgmental? hypocritically without removing the log from our own eye? Do we ignore the fact that we don't always treat people lovingly like we want them to treat us? Jesus challenges the religious. He challenges them. But the rebellious need to make sure they're righteous too. I mean, you may say, well, I'm not a really religious person, so that doesn't apply to me. Oh, well, that part doesn't apply to you, but enter the kingdom Enter by the narrow gate certainly does, and you could find your way on the outside of it. See, it's sad to me. I have been to many funerals in many different churches, and oftentimes the only consolation the people in the pew are given that the person, the deceased person that they're here to remember the only consolation they're given that that person is now okay or is with God has something to do with what that person did. Well, this person was, they were baptized. and This person, you know, was an upstanding member of the church. Or this person, they, they, they were really, they did a lot of good things in the community. Or they were confirmed and this person was a board member in the church. That's what's held up. I was at my, one of my relative's funerals and the, the pastor was saying about butterflies and how butterflies are changed and they, they're caterpillars and then they're changed and that somehow that was what was appropriate to think about with regard to this family member. And I left there going, what? A butterfly? Like this was like so vacuous, so empty. But so many people, that's what they're clinging to. Butterflies and good works that somehow that gets them into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, whoa, people. Take a step back and look at this. That's not what it meant. Many religious people are deluded into thinking that they're righteous because their conduct but apart from their commitment to Christ. Some of you, I, I call them binos. 
believers in name only, okay? They, 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 they say they're believers, but they're not really believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only, the destination, now notice the destination of the many is destruction. Exclusion from the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't want to go to destruction, he says enter by the, the narrow way. That's a good reason to enter the narrow way, right? You want to avoid destruction. He gives a second reason, and you see, I want to show you in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter, no, 13, verses 42 and 50. Here's what destruction looks like. And he'll throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, verse 50. And will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the destruction. It's conscious, eternal torment. For the people who are not on the right path. Fear and torment and torture awaits them eternally. I remember the first overseas mission trip we, Marla and I, took with two of our children. And we landed in this town and a big city and it was hot and it was humid. And we went to the place where we were to stay. And there was absolutely no air conditioning and it was hot and it was humid. And we went into our room, and the first time I've got these two young children and my wife, and I'm like trying to be the, the protector dad, and so it was blazing hot in this place. And so we opened the windows as wide as we could. We were like on a second story, so there was no danger of people coming in. And then, but from the outside, uh, right directly, but then I, it was so stuffy, so closed, and that I had to open the door to get some any kind of air going through the place. So I laid my body in front of the door, uh, thinking that, you know, I'm going to be the protector, so they got to go through me to get to my family. And we're laying there all night, and every hour on the hour, there was a church bell that rang, I mean every hour on the hour. And then, uh, then there was another church bell that simultaneously, not simultaneously, but a few minutes later would ring uh, the number of hours you know, so if it was 10 o'clock, there was 10, you know, and then at 6 in the morning, it was the call to prayer, and boom, boom, boom. It was the most miserable night of torment. And some people will experience far worse for eternity, the many. If the many, if there are many on this path, it behooves us to say, Am I among them? Am I merely religious? Or is there true righteousness in my heart? You say, well, how can I know? There's encouragement. I'm not here to shake your faith if you're truly a child of God, but I am here to help us examine our hearts. Notice Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Yet to anyone who asks, receives, but to one who Seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it shall be open to him. Jesus is saying, ask for empowerment. Ask for what is according to my will and what is according to his will. Look at verse 13. <laughs> Enter by the narrow gate. So ask and receive. We'll talk more about it later. But ask and receive. And then I ask myself, do I really care that many people are on this other path? Does it bother me that other people are on this other path? He gives another reason for entering the narrow gate. And this has to do with the narrow gate. 
In verse 14, look at verse 14. For, there's that word again, for, that's the reason. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few there be that find it. I like the ESV translation, which says, translates narrow as hard. It's a hard way. It's a hard way. Why is it hard? There is significant deterrence to entering by the narrow gate. The first one is belief. It's a difficult, it's a deterrent to us. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said it in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You say, well, yeah, I know all that. You do? Do you agree with it? Jesus is making a very narrow statement when he says, I am the way and the truth, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The world says that it's kind of like ancient Rome. All religious systems lead to heaven. And Jesus says, no, there's only one way. So what is it that we must believe? We must believe, first of all, that we're messed up. Now that gets you right a lot of brownie points with people these days. You know? You're a mess. I mean, I'm a mess too, so don't, don't, you know, but as soon as we point out people's faults, they, they get really, really defensive. Folks, this idea that we are depraved, that we are sinful, is repulsed by modern society. Folks, the, the move for revolution, not reform, the move for revolution that is driving some of the energy that's behind all of the discord in our world and country today centers around this whole idea. They, people do not believe that we are fundamentally flawed. No, the system is flawed, they say. Not we ourselves. No, I would say the Bible tells us that we are flawed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Folks, this doctrine of total depravity that we are sinners by nature and by choice is antithetical to modern humanism, modern thought. But it's central to the gospel. We must believe that we're flawed. Secondly, we must believe that because we're flawed, we deserve God's judgment. Now, there's another one that doesn't fly very well in the world today. The wage of sin is death, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But the marvelous good news is that God made a way for us to escape this wrath through His Son, Jesus Christ. God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died in our place. But it's not just enough to know it, we must believe it. Must confess with our mouth. And believe with our heart, Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Then we will experience righteousness. Then we will be saved if we believe and if we confess. So I just ask you this morning, you may be listening online or you're here this morning. Do you believe? Have you entered the narrow gate through belief in the Son? It's an obstacle. 
Because we must believe that Jesus died in our place and accept his death as the payment so that our wickedness is placed upon him and his righteousness is placed upon us. That's the divine transfer that must take place. If you don't trust Jesus, I invite you to do it today. There's a second deterrent to belief. Belief is the first one. The second one is behavior. You know when Jesus calls us to come and follow him, he calls us to come and die. I just read it this morning in Matthew chapter 16. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Oh yeah, sign me right up. I'm down. You know, I, I really want to die. No, I don't. In my flesh, I don't want to die. But to be a follower of Jesus means you're willing to die to yourself. I'm willing to die to myself. That sacrificial and selfless surrender to his will, not mine. And it runs counter. Now think about it, folks. In practical terms, this is what struck me. Consider the, the difficulty of pursuing and practicing humility. I mean, I'm sitting at the, the gas pumps at Sam's Club, Cub, apart from the gas pump. And I see this line of people backed up to go into this one pump. But then on the other side, there's all these pumps that are empty. And I just say in my arrogance, what are those people doing? Why don't they just go around the thing and get at the gas pump? This is stupid. Oh, yeah, like I'm such a smart guy. Why did I say that? It was condemning. Oh, hard to be humble. It is hard to be merciful towards those people whom I do not think deserve anything. But that's the definition of mercy. Not giving what is deserved. And that's what I have received. When Christ died on the cross and I accepted His death as the payment for my sin. Do we understand and do we find it hard to be gentle and kind and peacemakers do we find it difficult to give kindness in return for hostility do you have trouble praying for your enemies or maybe you got that one down all right it's no problem I, I just immediately you know people that tick me off I just like oh lord sometimes I do but not all the time You judge everybody fairly without plucking the log from your own eye? Do I judge people? Do I treat people all the time the way that I want to be treated by other people? No, I don't. True belief means true behavior, which is difficult. It's demanding, and it's also disheartening sometimes. It's not very fun. Righteous living requires that I submit to God's will, and it requires that God's power works in me. I don't know about you, but I need God's grace. And uh, in helping me. Think about this, folks. I mean, how are you responding? How are you doing right now? How are you doing to COVID? You really enjoying, uh, you know, wearing a mask? I hate it, personally. I had to wear a mask on the airplane. I wore it for six hours, five hours in a row. We, as soon as we got in the airport on our way back, I told you that. It's like, whew, I got a headache. I didn't like that at all. You like being isolated? You like being insulated? You like not being able to just move around freely like you think you should? How are you doing with that? that that's really, it's great. 
just willingly submitting to the authorities over me. How you doing with the recent Supreme Court decisions? You really like uh, including uh, all everybody, you know, redefining what the, the Equal Opportunity Act means so that, you know, it's not just about male and female. You really like the fact that there's a, now Louisiana, it's easier to get an abortion in Louisiana than not because the Supreme Court said so. How you feeling about all the demonstrations? Some peaceful, some not so peaceful. How you feeling about all the demands? How you feeling about the destruction in our streets, in our cities? What about political? Can- I mean, could there be any more hostile things going on? Any more divi- division? Now we got politics. We got an election, so everybody's mudslinging everybody else. I don't know what you read on social media. I don't know what you listen to or watch on media reports. I don't know who you talk to personally, but I'm wondering, has all of that, those interactions, uh, how's, it, how's it made you feel with regard to all the unrest that's going on? Anybody here feel a little bit anxious sometimes? Anybody have anger well up within you at any point? Any of you just kind of throw up your hands and go, I don't know, <laughs> Uh, I don't care. Anybody ever be a little bit afraid? I, I don't know if I should go out. I don't know if I should go to the grocery store. I'm, I'm not sure. Should I, should I come to church? I don't know. I mean, there's going to be other people there. And what if somebody's sick and I get sick? What if I get sick and I pass sickness to somebody else and somebody else dies because I pass the sickness to somebody else? We're afraid. Someone said recently that, that Facebook, and I'm glad I'm not following Facebook, especially in these days, that Facebook really amounts to today is this. Everybody is screaming at everybody else, I'm right and you're wrong. And from what I've heard from people who are following Facebook, that's pretty much true. Christians are called to a different life. We are called to exercise humility. To demonstrate mercy to the undeserving. I don't want to. I want to experience God's mercy, but I really don't want to express God's mercy. Because those people don't deserve anything but, and then you fill in the blank. No, God calls me to mercy. Kindness rather than hostility. Especially to the people with whom I disagree. I mean, I, I got to say, I was driving down the street in our neighborhood, and, you know, it's political signs, it's all this. And I saw this sign posted in this, you know, stuck in the yard, and this, I went, and internally I just went, ugh. I don't know if that's an emotion or whatever, but that's, that's I just kind of, this. I was just like, immediately defensive. So where's that coming from? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in my heart? Hatred or hope? See, God calls us to to love and to show. He calls us to abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good. He calls us to forgiveness. Where is that in the discussion in our society today? Forgiveness. Oh, 
Yeah, Jesus did say something about that. That if we pray, we should forgive. And then if we forgive, we will be forgiven in the same way that we forgive. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't really mean that that person has to come to me and ask for forgiveness. I'm supposed to extend forgiveness even if they don't ask for it. And that goes both ways. Wow. I need God's grace. I know I do. I, know I need God's grit, you know, His power. To show mercy to the people whom I see as and I'm using this in air quotes, okay? Ugly, you know, offensive. They disagree with me. So obviously they must be wrong. So I, I and I'm saying that sarcastically. It's not necessarily always true. Most of the time, no. It's not always true, okay? I need God's grace. I need God's grit to pray. To pray for those people who I see acting violently. Let me ask you, you ever pray for those individuals? I mean, somebody posts something on, I read this morning on something, and I just went, immediate reaction was, oh, and then I said, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for that person. By name, I prayed for that person, that they would come to know Jesus if they don't know Jesus, and if they know Christ, I, I, I just prayed for them. I want their heart to be changed. I want the hearts of everyone to be changed so that we're exuding what God has called us to do is to love. I need God's grace to take the log out of my own eye. First of all, I need God's grace to see the log. Because, you know, we don't see the log. <laughs> we see the log in everybody else's eye. I don't see the log in my own eye very easily. But we need to see it. And I need God's grace and grit to treat others the way I want to be treated. And so I have to ask and seek and knock continually because it's God's Spirit's power within me that will enable this to happen, this behavior. See, that's the path of life. It's not just that I trust Jesus and I know Him as my Savior, but I am transformed to live like Jesus in my behavior. That's what He's called me to. It's purposeful and it's meaningful. And despite all the difficulty, one day there will be a glorious return. It culminates in eternity. And notice the text says in verse 14, Few there be that find it. Few. How many is a few? Uh, out of a hundred, how many is a few? It's probably less than ten. Read it again. Few there be that find it. Of all of humanity, there are few that enter by the narrow gate. That's a sobering thought. They're the spiritually converted and committed as opposed to the spiritual counterfeits. And those who are completely contrary. It's uncommon. See, people aren't flocking to sign up for self-denial and, and, and getting rid of hedonism. You know? No, everybody's signing up for hedonism and self-exertion. Just watch the news. I mean, isn't most of the problem that we see today is everybody thinks I'm the most important person in the world? I think so. I like what Lloyd-Jones says. The man who does not consider his destination is a fool. The man who makes traveling an end in itself is illogical and inconsistent. I don't consider my end, I'm a fool. If I think that the journey is all there is, I'm illogical and inconsistent. You see, what way are you on today? Are you on the broad way that leads to destruction? Or are you on the narrow way that leads to life? 
That's the question Jesus leaves us with. The narrow way, there's few, but it's difficult. If we're on the narrow way, let's make sure. Let's make sure we're on the narrow way, okay? Let's repent of our sins and trust in Christ and then by His grace seek to live as best we can. Not perfect, no, 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 no. It's not perfection, but progress. Let's make sure we're on the way. Let's mourn for those who aren't. Let's marvel that any get in. Amazing thing about this, folks, is none of us deserves a way. But God provided a way for some that some would enter. And then finally, let's, let's make known the path to others. That's the first of those road signs. That directs us to Him. The second one is it deters us away from false religion. And that's the rest of the text. Fortunately for you, I'm not going to take near as much time with the rest of it as I did with that. Okay. We see the danger of false religion, and this danger is revealed in three ways. First, look at the intention of the false prophets in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. <laughs> Be on your guard. Everybody, you, you ever walk by a, a place that has the beware of dog sign in the yard? You know, beware of dog. They don't have those in Europe. Uh, the, you just have to beware of dogs, okay, because they're everywhere. And uh, they'll, they'll ram the fence right next to you on the sidewalk. Boom! You know, and it's just, woo! Beware of dogs. It's danger. So there's a danger. And notice the, the way that Jesus describes beware of false prophets. How are they described? Who come to you in sheep's clothing. The deception is inwardly. They're ravenous wolves. They have the external that they're just nice people. Oh, they speak Christianese and they are smiling and they're nice and they're courteous, but they, uh, they twist the truth, they deny the truth, they change the truth, and they make it heresy. Trying to lead you astray. Beware of these people. They're pleasant. They add to God's word. They subtract from God's word. Today, I would say that the lawless prophets, they preach permissive and all-inclusive and a non-offensive message that strokes our egos, makes us feel like we're all okay, and ends up condemning us to an eternity apart from God. And they give promises that are not contained in the truth of God. They emphasize God's love, which is God love? Yes, absolutely, unequivocally, 100% God is love, but God is also holy. God is also just. He will punish our sin. They don't talk about our depravity, our need to turn from our sin. They don't talk about the need to live a righteous life. They don't need to talk about the fact that there is coming judgment for those who reject. I may have told you this. I, I hardly, I, I heard this. I don't think I actually watched it live, but uh, Larry King was interviewing a very popular preacher and asked the question, why don't you ever speak about God's judgment? I mean, it's all over the Bible. Why don't you speak about God's judgment? Here's the response. I am only called to preach God's love. That's a false prophet. Because God is absolutely love, but God is also absolutely just and holy. You cannot preach God's love without preaching God's justice. Rob Bell published a book, Love Wins, which basically is the same thing, 
Love wins. It doesn't matter what happens, what you do. Love wins in the end. Kosti Hin, nephew of the most famous, probably one of the most famous prosperity gospel preachers, Benny Hinn, has said this after he has left that movement. He said this, and I quote, he says, he describes the prosperity gospel as, and then I quote, arguably the most hateful and abusive kind of false teaching plaguing the church today. And he says, all roads the prosperity gospel paves lead to hell. Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, that there would be false prophets and false teachers among us. That's the first thing, the intention of the prophets is to lead us astray. Now let's look at the identity of the false prophets. And they're identified as ravenous wolves. They're, by their fruit, they're known. And so it's interesting that in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's an animal metaphor. Then if you move to verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Now we're talking about plants. Okay, so we go to animals and then we go to plants. And all of this is intended to drive home to us in, in ways that we can understand how we can identify who these people are. We know them by their fruits. The identity is a metaphor, and there's three steps. First of all, there's a rhetorical question, verse 16, or verse, uh, yeah, the end of, verse, end of verse 16. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. Answer, no. And then, nor figs from thistles, are they? No. Uh, you know, you don't plant thistles. I hope you don't plant. Well, some people do, so i got to be careful. Some people do put thistles in their yard, but you don't get figs from them, okay? You don't get figs from them. No, that's true. So the, the, the principle is stated there, okay? That's a rhetorical question. Now there's a logical connection he makes in verse 17. Even so, notice the connection, even so, in the same way, trees are known by their fruit, and then the tree is known by its fruit is then applied as a metaphor to the people. People don't produce fruit, but people have fruit in the sense that their conduct and their words are evident of who they are. So in the same way that a tree is known by its fruit, whether it's good or bad, so a person is known by its fruit, whether it's good or bad. Ravi Zechariah was a man, a good man, known by good fruit. In the song, Born This Way, Lady Gaga basically justifies her lifestyle as the fact that that's the way God created her. That seems bad to me. Okay? You can pick your own analogy. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. That's the point. And then the sobering conclusion is in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. Judgment. Judgment that awaits the tree that's bad, the, the, the bush that's bad. You can go to John chapter 15. And Jesus prunes out the branches that are not producing fruit, throws them in the fire. But applied to the false teachers, if you look, and we will look, at verses 21 and following. So there's judgment coming for the bad fruit, bad tree people. That's what he's saying. It's coming. We know false prophets by their fruit, their works. I'm going to skip over. You can write it down. Matthew chapter 12, verses 30, uh, 20, 33 and 34. So just ask God to help us examine our hearts. What's in it? 
Give me wisdom not to be led astray. And finally, we see the inadequacy. There's this identity, but then the inadequacy of the false prophets. Notice they're inadequate in their words. Now, these are powerful verses, folks. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's possible to identify yourself in name with God and never be a child of God. That's what that verse says. And that is a sobering thought. Nobody enters the kingdom of God without acknowledging Jesus as Lord, but just because we acknowledge Jesus as Lord doesn't mean we're in the kingdom. Whoa. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart you believe resulting in righteousness with the mouth you confess resulting in salvation. It takes not just my proclamation, but it takes my submission to the person and the work of Jesus to be a true child of God. Lloyd-Jones says this, we're all in danger of being content with intellectual consent. It's not just about what I know in my head, it's about what's true in my heart. And that's my prayer for all of us, is that what's true in our heart would be true with God, that we truly are trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then, he says this, at the end of verse 21, how do we know? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Our declaration of allegiance is confirmed by our demonstration of obedience. I mean, is that what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it has to do with what we do. <laughs> but what we do doesn't make us who we are. Who we are makes us do what we do. I don't enter the kingdom of God through my conduct, but my conduct proves that I am in the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the connection. Then there's inadequate words. Now you can write down 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. We say, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and who loves me will obey my commandments. And then he says that we will know that we're his children if we walk in the same way that he walked. Inadequate works. Verse 20. Four, 22, I'm sorry. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not... Pro now, listen to this. Not only did they say, Lord, Lord, but they also did Lord, Lord stuff. Did we not prophesy on that day, judgment day? They stand before God and they say, here's the evidence that I should enter the kingdom of God. I said you, Lord, Lord. And then not only did I say, Lord, Lord, but what? I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did powerful works in your name. In the name of Jesus. This is a sobering, stark statement. They're going to hold up actual things that they did. Mighty, powerful, spiritual stuff. And look at verse 23. And he will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. It's possible. It's possible. These are the many. It's possible 
for people to engage in powerful spiritual activity in the name of Jesus and be strangers to him, operating in the power of the enemy. So we need God's discernment to know what's of God and what's not of God. Those words should soak in. And Jesus, Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of the same thing, verses 13 through 15, that there'll be these false prophets and they'll do all these wonderful things and we're going to be deceived. I don't have time to read it, but you can look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. So you know I'm not just making this up. It wasn't just Jesus who said it, Paul said it. So what do we do? We don't embrace the false prophets. We don't get enamored by their, their fancy talk or their magnificent deeds. We test them. That's what John said, test the spirits. Test the spirits. And how do we test them? Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 7, verse 27. Test them. Are you living it out? Are doing it? And then don't engage in false practices. You know, if you're listening to this or you're here this morning, you say, I really am not really, a, I'm not, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm kind of religious. Maybe I'm just rejecting Jesus. And I just really don't like the idea that you're saying that Jesus is the only way. Well, the text of the scripture, which is quoting Jesus, says he's the only way. And he confirms it in John chapter 14, verse 6, that only through faith in Christ do we have eternal life and none deserve it. Those are Jesus' words, not my words. And you know what? I want, we want everyone to be on the narrow way. Isn't it marvelous that, that we can be on the narrow way? And Jesus wants you to be on the narrow way, so I invite you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and be one of his children. Escape from any religious religion and become righteous in the name of Christ and in the person. And, and if you're here, you profess faith in Christ. Just look. I'm not asking you to say, oh, I don't know. He said I'm not a Christian. No. If you truly put your heart, I mean, I'm a guy who walked the aisle like 16 times when I was a teenager, you know, because I, well, I want to make sure it stuck, you know. It was like, I, I didn't know I had eternal security. Just read 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, if you're, if you're doubting it, Father, people. But then the other thing is, just ask ourselves, hey, am I willing to see in my own life inconsistency? Here's the test. People say, well, I don't know if I lost my salvation. I'm concerned I lost my salvation. I said, don't worry about it. You haven't lost your salvation. You wouldn't be concerned about it. The people who have lost their salvation aren't concerned that they lost their salvation. We have to examine our hearts. And if, if I see inconsistencies, Lord, search me, O God, and know me, and try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there are any wicked way in me. And then, if there is, then I confess it, repent of it, and ask God's grace to keep me going in spite of it. Folks, when I was about 21 years old, a, a buddy of mine, and I've told you this, we went, to, we went backpacking. And we took the, the road less traveled by up to uh, a very, 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 very great, wonderful vista. The road of following Christ is a, is a vista. It's difficult to get there. It's difficult on the journey, but it's worth it. And as we take a few moments to break bread and drink this cup, we're reminded of the price he paid so that we could live. And I invite you to do just that. If you're here and with us, listening online, you know Jesus as your Savior. Again, I'll remind those in the audience, if you uh, use this little cup that we give you, the, there's a top flap that breaks open the bread. It's a little hard to get to, and then there's a bottom flap. We invite you to do it as the praise team comes, 
and, uh, and sings. Uh, just examine your heart and take the element as you see and then join in as we sing. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name.